so much for the good music and special music and the good singing and for each one of you being here this morning. It's nice to finish out the week together, isn't it? And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to do that with me in the book of Nehemiah chapter 3. And as you just get comfortable with your Bibles open and your hearts ready for the Word of God, Nancy and I would like to express our great thanks, first of all, to the committee of the California Bible Conference here at Yosemite for their kindness in inviting us, Uh, not just the first time to Yosemite, but the first time to meet many of you, some we've met before, and it's nice to uh, see see each other after a a number of years. I know that with some of the Dixon family. We've had some good times together over the years, and it's, it's nice to see them all. Also, to see what the Lord is doing and the way that you've so well represented the work in such a, a vast area of California, a few other places as well, but it's been a great, great encouragement to us. I think probably the best part of all, and it's true for every conference we've been part of, is the fellowship that happens in between meetings. Now, you know, I'm sure Mike and I would agree on that wholeheartedly. It's, it's an honor and a privilege to minister God's Word at a conference. But the best insights of any ministry always break out right after we close in prayer. <laughs> and we're able to encourage one another in the things of God and the insights that you've brought into our lives, I'll speak for myself, have been uh, greatly encouraging And I just want to thank you and thank the Lord for you, each one. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3, we'll just look at two verses. We're going to be looking at the East Gate and also the Mifkad Gate. Then we're going to just mention, but we will look at them, the Gate of Ephraim and the Prison Gate, found in chapters 8 and 12 of Nehemiah. But for our reading this morning, just Nehemiah, chapter 3, verses 29 and 31. Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 29 says, And are after them Zadok, the son of Imir, made repairs in front of his own house. After him Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, made repairs. Come all the way down to verse 31, if you will, and it says, After him Malchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim, and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate, or the gate of inspection, and as far as the upper room at the corner. And we trust that the Lord will add His best blessing to these two verses, as it brings before us two wonderful gates that remind us of God's overall program. Remember, the perimeter around the city becomes the panorama of God's plan for you, for me, and for his workings and counsel for his own glory. Shall we pray once more? Our Father, as we bow in your presence, we thank and praise you for the times that we've had together here at Yosemite. Surrounded by these beautiful mountains, sitting in this valley below, we're reminded of your surrounding care that never ceases, that is more solid than any of these rocks, that will never give way, but that you keep us, and underneath you've laid the everlasting arms. O Lord, how we thank and praise you for your word. We pray that you will speak to our hearts now, we ask, in the name of our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, the East Gate reminds us 
of the most important event that is soon to happen, the next great event in God's program, and that's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I can hardly wait. In my heart, I think of how John writes in the Word of God the very last verses of the Bible. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And it should be so much on our hearts that we should not be surprised when we hear His voice and turn to see His face and are caught up out of this world to meet the Lord in the air and thus to be with the Lord forevermore. Won't that be a great hallelujah day? I think of the hymn oftentimes, O Lord Jesus, how long, how long, ere we shout the glad song, Christ returneth, hallelujah, hallelujah, Amen. amen. It's true, isn't it? He's coming back for us. The East Gate is perfectly set at just the right place to remind us of God's great heart of desire to bring people to himself before we enter in through that east gate. When he drove Adam and Eve out of the garden, he drove them to the east, and they went east of Eden. Cain went east, building cities as he went. One after another, going away from the presence of the Lord, went to the east. Nimrod, Lot, you name them. Everything that goes away from the Lord's presence in the first book of our Bible goes to the east. When the Lord pitched the tabernacle in the wilderness, there was only one door and only one. Which direction do you think he would put that door? After we as rebels have offended a holy God and turned our backs on God and went our own way to the east, if I had to pitch the tabernacle, I'd have pitched it toward the west. Not God. Usually when we have, well, let's use a husband and wife as an example. What seems to be irreconcilable, we bring the husband and the wife or the two parties of the problem together, and we try to get them to, to see their way clear, to both agree, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, let's forgive one another and reconcile. Man in our own rebellion, turning our backs on God, we went our own way, and here's God's form of reconciliation. He pitches the tabernacle to the east, and the door is there toward the east, that all we have to do is turn, and we're right face to face with Christ our Savior. Isn't it wonderful? That eastward door of the tabernacle now shows us that in the wall around the city, the east gate that would take you right into the temple, into the very presence of God, is the east gate of the wall as well. The east gate is the gate that the Lord Jesus went through at the triumphal entry, but I want to tell you that triumphal entry was nothing but a dry run rehearsal. <laughs> that wasn't the triumphal entry. That was when he offered himself to his own people. His own people received him not and said, according to the parable, Away with this man, we will not have this man to reign over us. And though humbly and lowly, sitting on a donkey, on the foal of a donkey, he offered himself as the king to his people. They refused him. He's coming back again right through the east gate. Not as the king, lowly, sitting on a donkey. 
He's coming back. Listen, let me say it in full title form. As the King of kings and the Lord of lords. When the Ottoman emperor, Suleiman, heard that the king was going to come through that east gate, he took action to block up that east gate. And even today, if you travel over to Jerusalem, we've traveled, we've stood on the Mount of Olives, and we've looked across the Kidron Valley. You know, the Mount of Olives, what a mountain. It's a place where there was a resurrection. Lazarus was raised right there at Bethany in the Mount of Olives. It's a place of worship, isn't it? It's where Mary of Bethany at the home of Simon the leper broke the alabaster flask of precious ointment, poured it out on his feet, anointed his head. His body was prepared for burial. It was true worship and the fragrance filled the house. There on the Mount of Olives, it was a place of weeping there at Gethsemane where he wept on the Mount of Olives. Great drops of blood, as it were, his sweat as he called out to the Father with loud vehement cries to save me from this hour. But Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And looking from the top of the Mount of Olives where he sat down with his disciples, according to Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, and told them the things to come, that we have stood on the Mount of Olives every trip, the last day of our trip to Jerusalem, and we've looked across that Kidron Valley over the brook Kidron and up the lower mountain, but still the mountain that is right before you looking to the west from the east and seen the eastern gate. Now it's a double gate, only one gate, but it's in the form of a double. Every time I see McDonald's, I think of the eastern gate, the golden gate it's often called because to the east and it's blocked up completely. You can't get through that gate. You can go through the Lion Gate or through the Zion Gate. You can even go today through the Dung Gate if you want to. But you can't get through the East Gate. It's all sealed off. Not only is it blocked up so that Messiah can't come through, and that was Suleiman's desire, but it is the largest cemetery in the entire world. So many headstones right on the Jerusalem side of the Kidron Valley right in front of that east gate, spreading the whole side of that mountain going down into the valley, over the valley and all the way up around the side of the Mount of Olives. I don't know how many graves are there. I wouldn't be surprised if it's over a quarter of a million or a half million. If you take a picture of it, it looks like solid rock, but each one is just a little headstone representing a body that has been buried there for two reasons. One, those who are looking for Messiah to come, they've been buried there in the hope of the resurrection. The other is that it is believed that Messiah, when he comes, he would not touch a corpse and defile himself with death. I'm going to borrow one verse. I'm sure Brother Mike's going to have the verse. I'm going to borrow one verse from Zechariah. When the Lord comes back again, his feet are going to stand on the Mount of Olives, right where we've stood, perhaps where you've stood. And it tells us that the mount is going to split from the east to the west into two pieces. Now, it's hard to imagine unless you've seen an earthquake, but this is going to be a unique earthquake. In fact, standing on the Mount of Olives, our first trip to Israel, 
Philip Halperin, excellent guide, told us as we looked across the Kidron Valley to the East Gate, and he told us the story of Suleiman blocking up that gate and of all of these bodies buried in front of that gate to prevent Messiah from coming through in victory and triumph. He said, God put something very special right where we stand. Now, you folks in California are going to know it better than me. It's called a geological fault line. Whose fault is it? It's the Lord's fault. You got St. Andrews. It's his fault here, over there. The Lord has put everything in just the right place. Not only there, every major city of all the world. When the great earthquake comes, I mean, the Richter scale, how high does it go? 6.9? No. 7.3? No. The great earthquake is going to take place one day. And right along that geological fault line that goes right through the Mount of Olives, we ask our guide, where does it go from here? He said, well, it runs from the east to the west, right across the Kidron Valley, right up the side of the mount that holds the temple in place, and right through that golden eastern gate. <laughs> the bodies are going to be divided. The blocks are going to come down. The eastern gate is going to open, and Messiah will walk through in absolute triumph to be the absolute ruler like we've never seen before, the righteous reign of the King of kings and the Lord of lords right here. The Lord is coming again. Let me try that one more time. The Lord is coming again. Amen. It's true, isn't it? We can hardly wait. But do you know what before He comes again? His coming is described in the New Testament in two phases. Before His feet stand on the Mount of Olives, He's going to appear in the air. And those who belong to the body of Christ, called the church, are going to be caught up and carried away to meet the Lord in the air. Do you really believe that? <laughs> A little boy came home from Sunday school and his mommy said, So what did you learn in Sunday school today? She said, Well, we learned how God delivered Israel out of Egypt. And how did, how did he do it, she asked him. And he said, well, they brought these aircraft carrier into the Suez Canal, down to the Red Sea, and transported all the people on pontoon boats over to the aircraft carrier, and then safely into the Promised Land. And the mother said, did your teacher really say that? The little boy said, no, but if I told you what he said, you'd never believe me. I mean, the rapture is unbelievable, isn't it? I've never flown a day in my life without an airplane. But on that day, I'm going to fly away. <laughs> I'll fly away. Oh, glory. I'll fly away. He's going to come and appear in the air. He's going to come right into Earth's atmosphere, below the mountaintops. If you're in an airplane when he comes, you'll have to go down to meet him. But those of us who are on Earth, we're going to go up to meet the Lord. And meet him right there in the air. We're going to be caught up. Now, it doesn't say he's coming in clouds. He's coming. We'll meet the Lord in the air. But he said we'll be caught up in clouds. It's, it's the idea we're going to be caught up in crowds. <laughs> and as we go up, isn't it going to be great to go up together? 
Now, we're not going to prevent those who have already fallen asleep in Jesus. They're going to be raised first. It's good mathematics. They got six feet further to go, you know. They're raised first, and as soon as they're earth's surface, we go up together. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, before Satan, the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, has any idea that this is the moment. No one knows it except the Father. He's going to tell the Son, go get your bride. And when he comes to get his bride, he's going to descend into earth's atmosphere. The Lord himself, not Moses, not Abraham, not Michael, not Gabriel, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall be raised first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus shall we ever be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And what a comfort it is. I don't know about you, but I can hardly wait. (laughs) I can hardly wait. He's coming again. We were finishing up a Sunday morning meeting at the assembly in Charlotte. And Margaret Winkler came running into the chapel. She said, there's somebody pulled in the parking lot. They have a question for for someone here. And so I ran out to meet them. They pulled in through the parking lot, and I went up to the door a little cautiously. man was driving. His wife was across the, in the passenger seat, two children in the back. And he rolled down the window, and I said, can I help you? And he said, we want to know what you teach here. Well, I always start with the gospel. You don't know how long they're going to listen. So I started with the gospel, and the wife waved me off. She said, I, I don't want to know about that. She said, I want to know what you believe about the rapture. I said, I can hardly wait. <laughs> it's the next great event. It could happen at any moment. You know, she said, you know, I used to think that too. But then I studied the Bible more deeply, and I don't believe it anymore. I said, well, go back and read the Bible again, not so deep next time. (laughs) You don't have to go deep to find it. He said, I go to prepare a place for you in John chapter 14. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what's the next words? I will come again. And receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That wasn't too deep, was it? He said it. It's true. He's coming back again. And so he sat on the Mount of Olives, looking at the eastern gate, the gate that we're studying right now. Everything we should do in our life should be with the proper eternal perspective of that east gate. If you are not aware of the east gate, reminding you that the Lord is coming back again. Now, I wouldn't do it, but I'd like to grab you by the arm and pull you through that east gate. You must live as a believer at the east gate. Lift up your heads. Your redemption draweth nigh. Look toward the east. He's coming again. We should live our lives in light of the Lord's coming. Every sunrise in the east. That's what we look for in North Carolina. I know you you enjoy the sunset over here in California, but every sunrise that comes up, it's coming out of the east the same way the Son of Man is coming. His return is going to be unmistakable. We'll know him. We'll see him. We'll hear him. And until that day, every day that you open the curtains or the blinds at your home, remind your heart, this could be the day. I want to live my life as if it's the day that Jesus will come. I don't know if it's going to be morning, noon, or night. But I know he who is coming will indeed come and will not tarry. I don't know if you make announcements like this at the assembly where you're at. These announcements are made in the will of the Lord if the Lord tarry. Leave off that last one. I will not tarry. 
Behold, I come quickly. One brother told me, everyone that's resting on Jesus' breast says, He's coming soon. He's coming soon. The East Gate reminds us. There are signs that the disciples said, When are these things going to be? What will be the sign of your coming, and what will be the sign of the end? And he told them. Things like false messiahs. We got so many false messiahs, you can shake a stick at them, but you'll get in trouble if you do for being a hate crime committal. False messiahs, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places, signs in the heavens, <laughs> stirrings in the ocean. All these are signs. How about men will be lovers of their own selves? Signs. As in the days of Noah, as in the days of Lot and Sodom. Tell me, we don't see these things. But we only see, as someone said, great events cast their shadows ahead of them. We only see the shadows of these signs yet to be fulfilled. It's like the pre-signs of the signs. The earth is going to be experiencing, as we read in Romans 8, birth pangs. Birth pangs increase in frequency and intensity. And I'll tell you what. The world is trembling already. All these things on the increase, but the signs are not fulfilled yet. The rapture is going to occur before the Lord comes back. And we see the east gate opened. But if all these signs are casting such a shadow before them, that we see, as it were, pre-signs of the fulfillment of the signs, well, in the words of one preacher, he said, as he asked the audience, what does it mean when you see Christmas lights in town? It means that Thanksgiving is very near. <laughs> what does it mean when you see the shadows of the signs? It means the rapture is that much closer, at least seven years. The East Gate. If you haven't been through the East Gate today already, get through the East Gate. He's coming again. It'll change your life. And the way we live, moment by moment, living in light of the Lord's coming. Verse 31 tells us about the Mithcad gate. I can hardly spell it, but I'll tell you what it represents. It represents the gate of inspection. That all passing through the gate pass through before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. It represents the judgments. John chapter 5 tells us that the Father has committed all, and that's A-double-L, -L, all judgment to the Son. Why? So that all would honor the Son even as they honor the Father. The Father judges no one, the Lord Jesus said, but has committed all judgment to me. My judgment is true, but he didn't come in the first time for judgment. When he comes again, perfect sequence, isn't it? That from the sheep gate, into the fish gate, over to the old gate, down in the valley gate, over by the refuse gate, up to the fountain gate, through the water gate, the horse gate, and the war that we're in is going to come to a close when Jesus comes again and finishes the battle of Armageddon. And there we have the Mifkad gate, the gate of judgment. The judgment of Israel, of the nations, of the angels, of which part you and I will take place when we crush the serpent under our feet. And the judgment seat of Christ, when while there will be horrors on earth, as John Philip says, 
there'll be hallelujahs in heaven when we start with the judgment seat of Christ where you will receive the rewards for the deeds done in the body and I will receive whatever there is that was done for his honor and glory. Paul, writing of the judgment seat of Christ, says, Be careful how you build. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, I, as a wise master builder, I laid a foundation that no one else can lay. Jesus Christ and Him alone is the foundation, but you be careful how you build on that foundation. Get the right foundation and then start building on it. You've got six kinds of building materials, two different categories. One category is enduring and eternal. The other, other category is temporal. The first category of that which is enduring and eternal are simple. Gold, silver, precious stones. The Lord uses the good stuff, you know. The gold, well, you can look in the tabernacle if you like over in the book of Exodus and you'll find out whenever you go into the Lord's presence, into the holiest of all, it's all gold. The psalmist said, in his presence, everything says glory. It's all gold. If you're living your life building with gold, in simplicity, it simply means this. You're living for the glory of God. The counterpart is wood. That represents man. You remember the blind man got his eyes partially open. He said, I see men, but they look like trees. Boy, if they look like these trees, there'd be some pretty big men, wouldn't they? The, the wood, it represents the flesh, covered over with the glory of God, that we not get our glory, but that he gets the glory. Silver. You remember that for the money, or the redemption money that Israel was to bring to build the tabernacle, to make the sockets of the foundation, they were to bring redemption money, half shekel each, add it all up together. I don't know how many it came up to, but it was all silver. It represents the redemption. When you witness to someone about the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're building with silver. We said through the fish gate, we don't want to go to heaven alone. Take someone with you. You're building with silver. <laughs> and that, what was it? Somebody said, concerning our money, we can't take it with us, but you can send it on ahead. Put some silver up there. Build with the eternal, enduring materials like silver. And gold and the precious stones reminds us of the ephod, doesn't it? Of the high priest filled with precious stones that, that represent you and me going into the presence of God. What have you learned in his presence this week? You're adding up the precious stones. Lord, I learned this from you in your presence. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed it to you. The father in heaven has revealed it to you. You need to be adding some precious stones. Counterpart, hay and straw or stubble. What do you do with the hay? You give it to the animals. <laughs> the bestial nature of man always going for himself. Don't live for that. It'll never satisfy you. And stubble, it's just good for burning. <laughs> just good for burning. You put a match to it. The gold, silver, precious stones, they're not only going to endure the fire of God's judgment, they're going to be purified and the dross will be gone. But when you put fire to the wood, hay or stubble, I tell you what, only the Lord can work out sin surround sound. You put a match, I'm afraid to try it again. You put a match to wood, hay or stubble, what happens? It's gone. 
Is it possible that a believer can spend his time doing nothing but what brings glory to ourselves, following the bestial nature of the flesh, and just living for the, the ashes of this world? Oh, yeah. Will you still be saved? Absolutely. Yet so is by fire. That's not the way we want to finish, is it? Build at the Mifkad gate. And when you go through the gate of inspection, we want to hear just one word from the Savior, don't we? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter in the joys of thy Lord. You've been faithful in a few things. I'm going to make you a ruler over many. We come to that tenth gate, the Mifkad gate. Two other gates. The first gate, you'll find it in chapter 8. We won't turn to it. But it's the gate called the gate of Ephraim. In the history of Israel, Hosea sounds a tremendous warning saying, Ephraim has given himself to idols. Leave him alone. Now, I like to think uh, that I'm glad we don't have idols like Israel had and Babylon had. <laughs> Why do you think John would write in 1 John, My little children, keep yourselves from idols. And Paul would warn about it. We do have idols today. We have worse idols than what they had in the old days of Israel and in the early days of the church. The supreme idol that we're seeing today is the idol of self, lovers of our own selves, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. The new age is upon us. But I want to tell you, the new age is nothing more than the old lie. What is the old lie? Satan told Eve, God knows in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. That's the new age. It's just the old lie. The epitome of idolatry, even though we say this is the worst, there's one yet worse than this. The epitome of idolatry will be when the Antichrist takes his place in the holy place in Jerusalem in that day during the Great Tribulation, at the beginning of it, the midway point between the seven years, after three and a half years, he'll stand in the holy place and he'll say, I'm God, worship me. And the world will fall down before him and idolatry will have center stage. And then we'll see things like we've never seen before. Great Tribulation begins and God will unhurl the wrath of heaven against all this ungodly world who not only bow the knee to Antichrist but will not only take his mark but demand his mark and say, I want it now. You don't think that's true? <laughs> when the iPhone came out, what does I stand for anyway? No, I don't want to pick on you. I don't have an iPhone so I can pick on you. iPhone, iPad, iPod. What does I stand for anyway? If you got up at 2 o'clock in the morning and stood in front of that electronics store in line in the freezing cold to get the first iPhone, it stands for idle. Demanding we get it and we get it now. That's that's the mentality of our world, isn't it? When Antichrist takes his place, we're going to say, I want his mark, I want it now, and the world is going to fall down and worship him. That's the gate of Ephraim, idolatry. That's what's going to be happening at the end in this world When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end? We'll see Antichrist taking his place. What happens after all that? The last gate. 
the prison gate. It's the saddest gate in the world. When God will assemble all the dead from Hades, the sea will give up its dead. All those who have died without Christ will be ushered up before the last final judgment, the great white throne judgment. The books will be opened to judge the dead out of them. You know, if you're at the judgment seat of Christ, you're on your way into heaven. At the great white throne judgment, no one goes to heaven from there. You're on your way to hell. The books will be open and the Lamb's book of life will be open. And everyone not found, anyone not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. That's the prison gate. Right now, those who die without Christ, it's like they're in the county jail waiting for the final trial and the judgment. And then the judge will pronounce the sentence. Depart from me, workers of iniquity. I never knew you. And they'll be cast into the lake of fire that burns forever and ever and ever. We who know the Lord, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. We say hallelujah to that. But those who don't know the Savior, harvest is past, summer is ended, and we're not saved. A thousand years, 10,000 years, a million years, still separated in a flame that never dies. Verse 33 of Nehemiah chapter 3. Verse 33, or is it 32? Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 32. You know, it says, between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, and I'll stop right there. Do you know we're right back where we started? I'm so glad there's only 10 gates in Nehemiah 3. We mentioned the other two just to know that there's 12. But if you want to avoid the gate of Ephraim and the prison gate, stay in chapter 3 and come all the way back to the sheep gate. The only way you'll miss the gate of Ephraim and the prison gate is to enter in right where we're back where we started in verse 32. Just like in verse 1, the sheep gate. You can still enter in and come to the Savior. Make no delay. He's coming back again. The East Gate reminds us. He's going to judge his people. Let's serve him with all of our heart. Not for eternal life. That's free. But for the rewards he gives for a life, for his glory, for his honor. And if you haven't put your trust in Christ, come right back to the Sheep Gate. One more chance as we close with a word of prayer. Shall we pray? Oh, Father, we simply pray that you would save the souls nearest hell right here and all those listening to this ministry on these gates that have become precious. We say like the psalmist, our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. You love the gates of Zion, Lord, more than the dwellings of Jacob, and we love these gates too. And we pray that anyone who has not entered the sheep gate that this will be the day and this will be the moment that they put their trust in the only one who can save, in the Lord Jesus Christ, for we pray in his name. Amen.